hppodcraft.com. Very genuine, though not without the typical mannered extravagance of the 1890s, is the string of horror in the early work of Robert W. Chambers. Since renowned for products of a very different quality, The King in Yellow, a series of vaguely connected short stories, having as a background a monstrous and suppressed book whose perusal brings fright, madness, and spectral tragedy, really achieves notable heights of cosmic fear in spite of uneven interest and a somewhat trivial and affected cultivation of the Gallic studio atmosphere made popular by Du Maurier's Trilby. You know, it's funny, the first time I checked a copy of The King in Yellow out of the library, the blurb on the front said, really achieves notable heights of cosmic fear, dash H.P. Lovecraft. <laughs> they kind of cut out in spite of uneven interest. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's so funny. Well, that was a quote from H.P. Lovecraft's Supernatural Horror in Literature, talking about The King in Yellow. Yes. And we're going to talk about it here at the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com, I am Chris Lackey. And I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And we're so glad to have you here on our uh, first 2.0 show. I don't know what to call it, but I do think that in our last show when we talked about supernatural horror and literature and we only got through the first three or four paragraphs, <laughs> I think we were having a little separation anxiety from our man, HPL. It was hard because it wasn't a story. Yeah. We're, we're able to kind of latch onto these stories, and stories trigger personal experiences for both you and I. Uh-huh. And I felt that reading an essay which was more thoughtful and it was more about ideas there was a lot to process there so yeah i feel like we're gonna have some fun with this robert chambers story the repairer of reputations we definitely are and this is the kickoff story for the anthology the king in yellow yes and i read this when i was pretty young you did too right Eh, high school yeah and i just thought it was such a cool i mean i just got into it right away it's so different it's so weird and strange and it it doesn't feel like something that was written in the 1890s it feels modern to me yeah yeah it definitely does well this is our first time going with a new author what do we know about this guy robert chambers well robert chambers was born in 1865 and died in 1933 Uh, all right that's enough i know it all (laughs) (laughs) no go ahead i'm sorry he started off as an artist and got into writing and he wrote this in 1895 the king in yellow later on he sort of got into writing romance fiction right shop girl stories is what they call it and that's sort of where he became popular and he was even a best-selling author at the time which was the late 19th century it's funny that lovecraft criticizes him for having that gallic studio atmosphere meaning i guess all the scenes are happening in french uh, rooms where guys are painting models right and we're going to get into that <laughs> a little bit in the um the yellow sign, which has that setting. Kind of the guy's life, right? I mean, he was a New Yorker, but he lived abroad in Paris yeah. for mm-hmm. a great deal of his life, and he was a painter. So it's not as if he was posing. No. It's what he actually cared for. You know? uh, yeah. As much as Lovecraft gives him a, a half-hearted endorsement in the beginning, his work is definitely influenced by Chambers. Absolutely. I think that, and in that quote, we heard that the motif in all of the stories in The King in Yellow is that play, The King in Yellow, which is this play, if you read, will drive you insane. Very much like the Necronomicon or any of the books that Lovecraft would float around in his different short stories to connect them. That's, you know, that was something I was thinking about when I was reading this, how insanity is a huge part of the story and madness and Mm -hmm. how I've always associated with Lovecraft's work madness. Right. After we've gone through Lovecraft's work, you know, madness doesn't really play as much into it as I thought. Yeah. The only people that really go insane Well, first of all, people faint all the time. They see scary things and they faint. But I wouldn't consider that madness. It could be argued that Armitage, when he was studying the Narconomicon, he kind of was going a little nuts. 
but then he pulls it together and then he, you know, he's fine and he's able to do the spells and the voice sign and all that jazz. And then there was the guy on the boat in the Call of Cthulhu, uh, Parker. He went nuts when he mm-hmm. saw Cthulhu. He, you know, he died from fright, basically. But is that insanity? Yeah, there's this Danvers Institute for the Criminally Insane. I mean, there, there's constant reference to it. Mm-hmm. And it was clearly a big motivating influence on Lovecraft's life, having right. parents that went there. And so I think it's always associated with his mythos. But the interesting thing here, and and we should dig into the story, this is an example of a narrator being unreliable. What he says is happening is maybe not happening. And we don't see that called out in Lovecraft. The reason that we know in The Repair of Reputations that the narrator is crazy is that he honestly reports how other people react to the things that he says. Yes. So he'll say crazy things, and then people will react to them, and I think he honestly reports that, and that's kind of how we know. Right. But we don't know it when we start the story. You know, in fact, let's get started in the story before you get into much detail. Well, no, we're talking about the right thing because we were talking about Paris and we were talking about madness. And this story opens up with a French quotation. I did ask our listeners to translate it. Uh, Here's what it sounds like in the French. Ne rayons pas les fous. Leur folie dure plus longtemps que la nôtre. Voilà toute la différence. And that was read by Steve Dempsey. Steve Dempsey, who also has a story in Shotguns vs. Cthulhu. Right. And Steve was also nice enough to offer a translation, which is, Don't mock the insane. Their madness lasts longer than ours. That's the only difference. When I read this the first time, I just glossed over the French. I didn't think about it. Mm -hmm. But it really is kind of an incredible statement. Yeah. And I say this as somebody who has recently gone insane. You know, I'm like... got in an argument and suddenly i was like i don't know what i'm even talking about you know i don't even know what i'm saying right the only difference between me and a guy in an institution is that i got over it yeah (laughs) all right to chapter one well we got a great thing in the chapter in chapter one in that it's a story set in the future because this book was published in 1895 Mm -hmm. it's funny when something in the past is considered the the future but this is the first couple sentences say Toward the end of the year 1920, the government of the United States had practically completed the program, adopted during the last months of President Winthrop's administration. The country was apparently tranquil. So right at the top, we get that this story is some kind of speculation on what might happen in America. This is a really strange part of the story because it it starts off with all of this kind of telling of what happened uh, at the turn of the century which to me, it didn't really mean much and it seemed pretty random. And I feel like if you read this in the 1890s, you would would get what all these things are referencing. Stuff like the Cuban-Hawaiian investments had paid 100%. Like, what (laughs) what is that? I don't know what that's, what what is he talking about? I feel like you're getting tricked a little. It's kind of a cool narrative thing in that when I read this the very first time, I took this all very seriously. Okay, this is this guy's vision of the future. Yeah. Now, knowing that the protagonist is crazy, I, I think this is all bullshit. Right. I don't even think the thing is taking place in the future at all. Yeah, because there are references to characters' ages in here and certain battles that were at certain wars. And if that were the case, these guys would be in their 40s or 50s, and they're described as being young men. So... Yeah. What's the misfact there? Are these guys actually old guys or, or are they young guys and it's not really the future? One thing that stuck out to me was the uh, sentence where he says, The nation was prosperous. Chicago, for a moment paralyzed after a second great fire, had risen from its ruins, white and, and imperial, uh, more beautiful than the white city which had been built for its plaything in 1893. 
So this was probably being written while the Columbian Exposition was going on in 1893. That was the biggest thing happening in the country. Yeah. Do you think in 1920 they give a crap? I mean, obviously, look, <laughs> The Devil in the White City is a bestseller, so we're clearly still fascinated sure. what happened in Chicago a hundred and so years ago. Like, if I were writing a story about the future in 1985, which is about the same length of time from now, mm -hmm. You know, it would be like saying Back to the Future was an incredible movie and many other movies were equally incredible. You know, you, you, you have no <laughs> right. lens on what actually is going to happen. So you just reference things in your own time. Yeah. And to me, when I was reading it this time, I was like, oh, this actually isn't the future. This is just happening in his mind. Well, it could be. It's, it's hard to say what's real and what's not real in the story. And, and that's mm -hmm. what kind of makes it interesting. For me, I really felt the insanity of it because I wasn't sure what's real and what's not real. And that is a problem with schizophrenia is you, you can't distinguish between the two. And that's the problem. There were some things in here that I think Lovecraft would have liked, like the exclusion of foreign born Jews and the, uh, <laughs> the independent Negro state of Swanee. <laughs> Uh, the most like obvious that. marker that this whole thing is fake is when he says bigotry and intolerance were laid in their graves <laughs> and kindness and charity began to draw warring sex together. Give me a break. Yeah, that's never going to happen. A lot of people hope in a, a utopian future. I mean, look at Star Trek. But Star Trek is about a ship going out and fighting with people. Yeah, sure, there's a guy with a forehead wrinkle getting along with a guy without a forehead wrinkle, but the show is still about war. But it wasn't, no. An expansion of colonialism. No, no, no. Yeah, it was it not about that. We're not going to get into this debate. Whoa. Right now. The <laughs> okay. is not about that at all. By the way, we've never talked about this before. No. Uh, so, yeah, that I completely disagree with what they say their elevated view of the world is and then what the what? show actually shows, which mm -hmm. is complete disregard for it constantly. They're explorers, but in the fact that they're explorers, they make some terrible mistake. If you're watching the old show, it's it's the original series. Yes, they do horrible things that you should never do. But exactly, the, the more modern show. No, no, you it, can stop there. It was cool when you agreed with me. Anyway, <laughs> the beginning of this story, it's got that first paragraph kind of great stuff that sets you up. But then we actually get into the story, right, and and yes. learn who this guy is. I had walked down that day from Doctor Archer's house on Madison Avenue, where I had been as a mere formality. Ever since that fall from my horse four years before, I had been troubled at times with pains in the back of my head and neck, but now for months they had been absent, and the doctor sent me away that day, saying that there was nothing more to be cured in me. It was hardly worth his fee to be told that. I knew it myself. Still, I did not grudge him the money. What I minded was the mistake which he made at first. When they picked me up from the pavement where I lay unconscious, and somebody had mercifully sent a bullet through my horse's head, I was carried to Dr. Archer, and he, pronouncing my brain affected, placed me in his private asylum, where I was obliged to endure treatment for insanity. At last, he decided that I was well, and I, knowing that my mind had always been as sound as his, if not sounder, paid my tuition, as he jokingly called it, and left. I told him, smiling, that I would get even with him for his mistake, and he laughed heartily and asked me to call once in a while. I did so, hoping for a chance to even up accounts, but he gave me none, and I told him I would wait. <laughs> Love it. And that's our first introduction to the protagonist of the story, Hiltrud Castain. He is nuts. He's crazy. 
He is. By the way, our reader today is, uh, we're so glad to have him back. It's J.P. Moore, another author. Yep. He's the author of a book called Toothless. Uh, not to do a shameless plug in the middle of it, but you, you really should check this out. It's this cool medieval zombie apocalypse story. The thing about J.P. is he just won the gold medal in horror at the 2010 Forward Book of the Year Award. Wow. Yeah. And and the reason I always like J.P. and, and what he does is he, uh, similar to what we did a couple weeks ago with me reading my story, mm-hmm. Toothless started as a podcast on patiobooks.com. Oh, neat. You can get it now as a book, but that was the way he kind of was selling his fiction. I think that's really cool. Yeah. He's got a short story called Lord of the Southern Sky which is going to be in the anthology When the Villain Comes Home, which is a Dragon Moon Press anthology that people should check out when you're looking for some good collections of short stories. Since we cover that on the show, I'm always trying to celebrate these people who are still putting out anthologies of short stories. <laughs> people don't really read short stories as much as they should anymore. I think it's like one of the greatest things to be able to read something in one sitting. Yeah. Totally beside the point. But you can learn more at jpmoreonline.com, and we'll put a link up in our show notes. Uh, but yeah, this guy's crazy. <laughs> He is. Hiltred's got some problems. And he talks about, well, maybe one of the things that was causing him a problem is when he was in the institution, he picked up and read The King in Yellow. During my convalescence, I had bought and read for the first time The King in Yellow. I remember after finishing the first act that it occurred to me that I had better stop. I started up and flung the book into the fireplace, The volume struck the barred grate and fell open on the hearth in the firelight. If I had not caught a glimpse of the opening words in the second act, I should never have finished it. But as soon as I stooped to pick it up, my eyes became riveted to the open page, and with a cry of terror, or perhaps it was of joy so poignant that I suffered in every nerve, I snatched the thing out of the coals and crept shaking to my bedroom, where I read it and reread it, and wept and laughed and trembled with a horror which at times assails me yet. This is the thing that troubles me, for I cannot forget Corcosa, where black stars hang in the heavens, where the shadows of men's thoughts lengthen in the afternoon, when the twin suns sink into the lake of holly, and my mind will bear forever the memory of the pallid mask. I pray God will curse the writer, as the writer has cursed the world with this beautiful, stupendous creation, terrible in its simplicity, irresistible in its truth, a world which now trembles before the king in yellow. Wow. Now, this book has rocked culture and civilization. Uh, Governments have banned it, and it's been burned, and they've treated it like it was a disease. So this is not just like the Necronomicon, where it's a book where nobody has heard of it before, only scholars. This this book was actually published, and it was out, and it started driving a lot of people crazy. And I think that there's some things... By the way, we're going to have Andrew Lehman on later this month, and he's going to talk a lot about what was going on in literature in the 1890s and what might have motivated Chambers to write a book like this. But I can say that Oscar Wilde wrote this play called Salome that was banned, was scandalous, and apparently... Some people thought would drive people crazy. If they saw it. <laughs> Obviously, there is no work of fiction that could drive anybody crazy, in my opinion. I mean, it's kind of an impossible thing, right? Have you read Fifty Shades of Grey yet? <laughs> there was also a literary journal at the time 
called the yellow book that you know you couldn't walk down the street and pass a bookshop without seeing this big predominant color yellow going on and i think it represented decadence and the idea that you could read something and it would corrupt you he goes on and talks more about things that are going on because he's in new york city near washington square mm -hmm. there's this unveiling of a new they called a lethal chamber but it was a, it's a suicide booth that concept is the most interesting thing in this book as far as it's view of the future because they're happy about it they're having a huge ceremony yeah. to unveil this suicide booth if you want to die we're not gonna be mad at you about it anymore yeah. there's a place you can go do this if you're miserable well i mean yeah there's even a quote where it says there a painless death awaits him who can no longer bear the sorrows of his life if death is welcome let him seek it here wow that's a very different idea of nowadays i think there's a better understanding of mental illness and depression and all of those things and that those mm -hmm. things could be treated and dealt with and death is not the answer but at the time i don't i think psychology was still in its infancy really this might have been an idea that some people were proposing that if people are sad or depressed or just want to die they should be allowed to do so man you know how many breakups though would end with fine i'm going down to the lethal chamber <laughs> no no honey don't you know where to find me but one of the best things about the lethal chamber chad uh is Futurama. Yeah, yeah. Well, so I wonder if the writers, they have to. Have they have to kind of aware yeah. of this. I think it's the first episode of Futurama. Bender goes into a suicide booth. Yeah, the suicide booth is present and referenced in Futurama occasionally, which is why that show is so genius. This big ceremony is happening. Kind of a neat structure that we get. Here's the big picture of the whole country. Mm -hmm. Now here's the small picture of what's happening in New York today. Mm -hmm. Here's who this guy is. And then we actually get him interacting with some characters so we can get into what's actually going on. And it's it's interesting because the king in yellow, it's all about royalty. It's all about secession. It's all about who's going to rule. And the first person that he goes across is an armorer, Hauberk, yeah. who's in there beating on uh, pieces of plate metal to recreate old heraldry. And I, I think he's got a daughter, right? Yeah, Constance is her name. When uh, Hildred walks in, Hauberk says, hey, Castain, it's good to see you. And then Constance's daughter comes in and she looks really disappointed because it's it's him and not his cousin, Louis. And that's really the point of this uh, interview is to find out that our protagonist has this cousin who's in love with right. the armorer's daughter. Right. And we find out that eventually uh, Louis is a kind of a war hero, celebrated uh, soldier. He's in the parade that that goes on in this inauguration of the suicide machine. He was part of those festivities and things. The two purposes that this scene serves are to tell us that because we already know the narrator is crazy by this point. Right. But we know that certain things in the environment can kind of put him in a spell. And one of those things is listening to Hauberk. Ironwork, essentially, yeah. you know, like the yeah. flames and the sound of it is it just suddenly puts him in a kind of a paralysis. It's cool because it gives you a picture of what this mental illness is like for him. Yeah. The other thing that we learn is that upstairs, there's a guy named Mr. Wild, who's kind of a genius. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, that's what Hildred's saying. Hauberk is like, oh, that guy's just a crazy old coot up there. Mm -hmm. He says, oh, no, he's he knows so much about history and all these things. In fact, he knows about this armor that you're looking for to complete your set. He knows the exact address, and I, and he gives him. He tells him specifically what address. It's some playhouse, right? Eight Pell Street, yeah. He says, oh, it can be found there. And he just kind of dismisses me because, oh, of course, not. that's ridiculous. And he also says, goes, oh, well, that's if that's nonsense, what about when Mr. Wilde said that you are the Marquis of Avonshire and Miss Constance's? And then when he says that, Constance gets really afraid and kind of scared look on her face. Hauberg sort of balks at him and there's something weird going on. And then Constance just says, hey, you know. Mr. Wilde is wrong. Let's just leave it at that and agree. It's a cool part of the story because you don't know if he's making it up 
yeah their reaction to it or or if they actually because i think that he killed somebody hauberk he killed somebody who had defamed his wife and so they had to flee yeah supposedly they're pretending that they're other people but are they or are they not is that true is it who knows man we don't know everybody's crazy bull that gets us through the first chapter and then when we get into the second chapter we meet mr wild by the way choice of character name you think was intentional oh it had to be well we get into the second chapter he goes up to meet this guy and it's a strange scene when he had double locked the door and pushed a heavy chest against it he came and sat down beside me peering up into my face with his little light colored eyes Half a dozen new scratches covered his nose and cheeks, and the silver wires which supported his artificial ears had become displaced. I thought I had never seen him so hideously fascinating. He had no ears. The artificial ones, which now stood out at an angle from the fine wire, were his one weakness. They were made of wax and painted a shell pink, but the rest of his face was yellow. He might better have reveled in the luxury of some artificial fingers for his left hand, which was absolutely fingerless, but it seemed to cause him no inconvenience, and he was satisfied with his wax ears. He was very small, scarcely higher than a child of ten, but his arms were magnificently developed, and his thighs as thick as any athlete's. Still, the most remarkable thing about Mr. Wilde was that a man of his marvelous intelligence and knowledge should have such a head. It was flat and pointed, like the heads of many of those unfortunates whom people imprison in asylums for the weak-minded. Many call him insane, but I knew him to be as sane as I was. I do not deny that he was eccentric. The mania he had for keeping that cat and teasing her until she flew at his face like a demon was certainly eccentric. <laughs> as sane as I am. <laughs> yeah. So this guy's got these crazy, weird Mr. Potato Head ears. Well, he's got a weird, yeah, and he's got a weird shaped head as well, but he's got really thick, powerful thighs like an athlete weird it's all just and that's what's so great about this story is it paints this really peculiar picture that is odd in ways that you don't anticipate and uh, i just love it i gotta say something real quick yeah to you my plan for this month of august was to cover this story then the yellow sign then the yellow wallpaper as if it were nothing we're talking i I don't know how long we've been talking right now but there is no way we're going to tie this no way and no way we should i think that was stepping out and saying what we were going to do that far in advance was a horrible mistake (laughs) i love this so much i mean i could talk about it forever yeah but at least two episodes yeah okay i just don't want the pressure to be on no there's no pressure just relax just relax we'll we'll enjoy this we got some we got some time left in this episode before we okay wrap it up we often talk about how stories will remind us of things or impact things one of my earliest memories is when I was in kindergarten. Uh, I got in trouble from our teacher. And the other kid that got in trouble, Quinn Hernandez, they quarantined us. We had to go sit in this table while everybody was playing. Mm-hmm. And Quinn leaned over to me and said, boy, they're going to be really sorry about this because I have an army outside. I have 20 tanks. I have <laughs> 5,000 soldiers. And when Miss Shutt finds out about this, she's going to be really sorry. And my five-year-old response was, huh. Well, that's interesting that you have that because I have 30 tanks outside or, you know, I I just one upped him and this began and we were both speaking as if all of this was real and we kept going back and forth about our different armies that we had. Everything in the story speaks to me of that experience. You know, we both knew we were crazy, 
But you have two crazy people together just feeding each other's. You're just puffing each other up. He comes in. He's got this this cat. that, And that's one of the really creepy things about this, too, is that he's got all these scratch marks from a, a, his cat that attacks him <laughs> right. all the time. And to get your face, you have to be down pretty Because cats aren't that big, and they can't jump that high. So he's, like, getting in this cat's face and almost daring it to, to scratch him and stuff. Cat will mess you up if you ask it to do that. You know, you're a human being. You can stop the cat. Yeah. I mean, you really got to be wanting to be hurt. Yeah, abs- absolutely. After he comes in, this is the first thing he does. He gets this big ledger and he opens up and he just starts reading out of this ledger, reading people's names and saying what they've done and how much they've paid as a retainer for him to repair their reputations. I'm not going to go into the details with it, but that this guy is going to be able to do it. And he starts throwing out these dollar amounts and Hildred says, wow, you're actually pulling in a lot of money. And he says, well, that's not the point of it. I just want, you said I couldn't make money doing this, but I'm showing you that I can. Money's not important to me. It is a really honest delusion. The craziness of the story is interesting because it's honestly crazy, if that makes sense. It sounds like what crazy people will say to each other. The fact that he thinks he's got high place government officials and yeah well because he and he also says hildred says to him he goes well yeah i didn't think it was it was gonna you were gonna make money on this and he goes well i've got i've got 500 people that work for me 500 people that work yeah. for him this dude that that is in his crappy little apartment with this cat the whole time <laughs> and he's like 500 people and this is like your story chad 500 people working for me and they're out there i don't have to pay them very much but they're very hard yeah. workers but then hildred says well what about what you're doing for me what's going on with that and then he goes ah well get the manuscript where are the notes yeah and then the notes say the imperial dynasty of america it's the first time you realize that the narrator has a goal now suddenly the stuff with his cousin and the girl makes sense it's a game of thrones he's playing (laughs) i love those books but the central mystery of a game of thrones the first book is all about a gigantic ledger that tells the story of secession so what the protagonist of that book finds out, it's essentially a murder mystery, is mm-hmm. really based around this book that says who was begot by whom, etc. Right. So I couldn't help but think of that. When he pulls this out, it's it's a book that is going to show the line of secession from this other planet or other world. It directs it immediately to his cousin. Wild asks him about this about Constance and she goes are they getting along is it going to happen and, and he's like yeah she loves him and he's like oh no that's going to be a problem Wild says well what about Dr. Archer and he goes no no don't worry about Dr. Archer I'll get I'll get him later <laughs> once everything's worked out I, I have time for him we have to sort this stuff out right away and he says alright well we've got 10,000 men ready to go on your side and we've got 100,000 we can have 100,000 men here in, in the first 28 hours yeah on day two uh, yeah <laughs> And, it, and then he says the entire state will rise in mass and then, you know, all the states yeah. will follow in after that. But hold on. But what what is this? Where is this lineage coming from? Who? What's Carcosa? What's the Lake of Halley? Like what? Well, Carcosa comes from a story by Ambrose Bierce, which is called An Inhabitant of Carcosa. Mm-hmm. And that was written in 1891. Now, in this story, it's only described as a mysterious city by somebody who was there before it had been destroyed yeah i know the names come from ambrose beers but as it's stated in the story is it like all mankind comes from this place or i mean why would there be a direct lineage between the lake of halley and carcosa and america i think that's something that sort of hand waved in this story because Mm. i mean right i mean i didn't get it it just seems it's sort of skipped over like they understand oh well of course if if this if you're from carcosa and and 
Hades and, and Haster, which is a place in the story. It's not a god. Okay. Haster is a place. If you're descended from those people, then you would be the, they just kind of agree that if, if that's the case, then you, of course, you would be the king of America. <laughs> well, I guess it's the truth, the awful, horrible truth that's revealed in The King in Yellow, the play, is where we would be able to learn that stuff. Wilde talks a little bit about The King in Yellow and mm. the yellow sign. He mentions the yellow sign. It's implied that both of them have read The King in Yellow. Hildred says, I'm willing to serve The King in Yellow. Wilde says, he is a king whom emperors have served. And then... Yeah. Hildred says, I'm content to serve him. So the king in yellow is the uber... Again, they don't go into specifics about what that means or why he's the uber king. Like, is it a god of some kind that is worshipped? But It kind of reminds me of Superman too. When... <laughs> what? I'm, I'm not kidding. General Zot doesn't... Isn't Lex Luthor trying to get just Australia? Yes, that's right. He's like, just give me this body of land and then you can be general of everything. But I want just this. So it's kind of what our protagonist is competing for, like the planet Earth. Right. But he knows he has to serve a, a greater liege. Yeah, because Haster and and these other places in Carcosa might other, be other worlds, other dimensions. It's really, you're not quite sure exactly what they're talking about because they're crazy guys. It's hard to make sense of all of this, but it is super interesting. And it it's is. It's really interesting. It's so engaging. Like, I'm really curious. I want to know more about what's going on with their, these guys and their, their yeah. world that they're creating. Well, I love their delusions. And it's very attractive when somebody has a crazy idea like this. There's, there's certainly there's kinds of madness that you don't want to know anything about. Right. But somebody who has delusions of grandeur, is, it's, it's kind of a fun thing. And it reminds me of uh, Joshua Norton, Emperor Norton first oh right yeah the the, uh, the king of america or san francisco or and then he proclaimed himself imperial majesty emperor norton the first this was prior to the king in yellow being written so yeah. i wonder if if chambers had you know keyed into this at all but he was this crazy dude in san francisco who said i'm the emperor of the united states and protector of mexico he huh. he it's very generous of him to be the protector of Mexico, even though I, 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 the implication is that he's going to conquer it eventually. But right now, it's just a territory. And that was in 1859. Oh, right, yeah. Uh, pe people thought he was crazy, but true to being Californians, they just got behind it instead of yeah. you know, rejecting him. And, and he became a very famous person. In fact, the reason I'm even aware of it is because in a Sandman, one of the graphic novels from the Neil Gaiman series, The Sandman, there's right. a book called Fables and Reflections, which mm -hmm. is a really good one. And it's yeah. got a story called Three Septembers in a January, and it's all about Emperor Norton. But I think this is a good point for us to break. We will jump back into this and we will finish it up next week for sure. We're crazy to think that we could have gotten through this one. I don't. Yeah, I don't know what we were thinking. It's such a fun story. It's so cool. And it's it's well written. And it's it's just neat. It's a really neat story. Yeah. And um, I can't wait to talk about it more next week. Yeah. So maybe September will be yellow, too. I don't know. Because the the, uh, the other story that we're going to cover from this collection, the yellow sign is just as rich and spooky and interesting. So. We'll give it the time it requires. And that's all we can say. But I really want to say before we close out that um, folks who are listening to this that means they subscribed to the show all right and supported us and and uh sorry if there were some kinks to work out but we really appreciate that you're here and you're listening and hopefully you'll uh, write us absolutely please give us feedback we we love it and it helps us improve our show i want to thank jp moore again for reading for us i really yeah. appreciate that 
And also Steve Dempsey for laying down some tranche for us. I love the sound of it. <laughs> yeah, he, he romanced me a little bit by reading Yeah, you that. fell in love a bit, didn't you? A little bit, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. all right. And next week, we'll finish up with The Repair of Reputations. I am Chris Lackey. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And this has been the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. hppodcraft.com <laughs>